What's going on? Ray Woodson back with you, and it's been an up-and-down couple of weeks for the Giants, to say the least. Subject of a separate Triples Alley Report podcast this week, where we had a chance to talk to Farhan Zaidi, the new president of baseball operations. So you can check that out also at BlueWirePods.com and an introductory press conference Wednesday afternoon at AT&T Park. Thursday morning at AT&T Park at 1130, special celebration of life in memory of Stretch, Willie McCovey, who died last week at the age of 80. And that was after the loss of Hank Greenwald, former radio and television voice of the Giants, passed away a couple of weeks ago. Well, a man who knew both those uh, gentlemen very well, John Miller, the voice of the Giants, one of the voices in a great broadcast booth, uh, sat down with me and uh, we chatted memories. And I think you're going to enjoy this. Somewhere Hank Greenwald is firing up a fine cigar Somewhere, Willie McCovey is catching one of those long drives that he hit into the heavens in his playing career. So here's John Miller talking first about Hank Greenwald and then Willie McCovey. Well, here on the Triples Alley Report now, we're chatting with the voice of the Giants, John Miller. And I wish I was under happier circumstances because we are going to talk about uh, Willie McCovey and we're going to talk about Hank Greenwald and a whole lot of other stuff going on. Uh, and if memory serves, you succeeded Hank in 1997, so it's been, what, 22 seasons now? Yeah, I, I think so. And uh, Hank had decided to retire and announced it late in the 1996 mm-hmm. season, and uh, I had been doing the Baltimore games uh, for uh, many years, 14 seasons, and actually was hoping to continue because uh, I had always thought that guys like Jack Buck or any Harwell uh, ben Scully, who had been with teams for a long period of time, that that was uh, uh, something to aspire to. And I had uh, hoped that maybe Baltimore would be that place. But uh, uh, the the Orioles were not making me an offer. Uh, they also were not saying they weren't going to make me an offer, but they actually would never make me an offer. So uh, late that season, my uh, lawyer said, well, we should have a plan B in case they're not going to make an offer. And I said, well, the only thing I've heard that's happening is Hank Greenwald has announced he's retiring from the Giants so that, that maybe there's something there and uh, and the Giants were very interested so as it turned out uh, even though my preference was to stay in Baltimore I came to San Francisco which I shake my head at that uh, the sort of the dumb luck of that for me because uh, uh, the, the Baltimore situation has not been a good situation and uh, the, the Giants situation it's sort of a been a renaissance of Giants baseball, so uh, with the new ballpark and uh, the big crowd, so uh, it really, for me, could not have turned out any better. Not that uh, I had anything to do with it other than uh, uh, being in a a situation where a confluence of events sort of sent me in that direction. Well, you're a Bay Area guy, so I mean, it was kind of a natural, if you were going to go anywhere, it would be here. Yeah, and I was a a Hank Greenwald guy, too, so... Mm -hmm. uh, uh, and, and for me, Hank was not a baseball announcer. I didn't grow up with Hank doing Giants games. So when I was a kid, Russ Hodges and Lon Simmons were the Giants announcers. Bill Thompson came in uh, uh, later on as a sort of a third guy. And, um, and I remember Hank as a, a guy mostly doing Warriors games and other sporting events. Uh, Hank actually uh, got a job in the Bay Area. He, he wanted to come to the Bay Area, and he got a job as the public address announcer at the old Civic Auditorium and occasionally the Cow Palace and then had a chance to go to Hawaii to do the Hawaii Islanders mm-hmm. AAA 
minor league games because they needed somebody who knew how to do uh, telegraphic recreations, which Hank had done when he was uh, back east. So, uh, so Hank thought, well, that's that's a pretty good job to to have in the Hawaiian Islands mm -hmm. and uh, doing minor league baseball. So he took that job, and while he was out there late in the baseball season, uh, he told me that uh, Franklin Muley had called him and offered him a job with the Warriors, not as the PA announcer, but he said he had made a deal with Channel 2. They were doing a, a Saturday night sports special uh, that was part of their programming, and that included several Warriors games. So he wanted Hank to do those Warriors games and uh, would work with Bill King on the radio when the game was not on television. So, mm -hmm. And that, that's really the, the Hank Greenwald that I grew up with. Mm -hmm. and, and I remember, and he didn't do, just do Warriors games on that Saturday night sports special. Maybe he was doing a, a Cal or a Stanford basketball game, might be the Saturday night sports special, even a, a Seals hockey game. The Seals were in the, the Western Hockey League, a minor league at that time. And uh, so Hank did a lot of things other than just the Warriors. But for me, uh, I was a big Warriors fan, and, and that's what I primarily remember Hank. And it wasn't just that he did a, a, a great play-by-play, -play, and he did a great play-by-play, -play, but that he was so funny, and he always made me laugh as, as a kid. Uh, and for me, in hindsight, Bill King and Hank Greenwald together on Warriors basketball on the radio was one of the great tandems of all time. And Bill would do the play-by-play -play most of the game, mm -hmm. and Hank was the color man. And after halftime, and I think Hank would do the halftime show and the pregame show and the postgame and whatnot, but he would then do the play-by-play -play for the first six minutes, or roughly six minutes, of the third quarter. And Bill would sort of like do the color. So Hank would still do the play-by-play -play mm -hmm. on occasion, but uh, it was mostly Bill and then Hank. And, and Bill was uh, the all-time great basketball play-by-play -play man yeah. painting the picture on the radio. Yeah. I've never heard anybody better. And, and then Hank was the guy who, and he knew the game really well, so he gave you good information, but he, he did it in his style with humor mm -hmm. and uh, with that, 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 that dry sense of humor that made you laugh. And, and that was not Bill's strength. Bill was, gave you the, the brilliant description and the picture and, uh, and gave you the game in a, in a passionate way. And then there was Hank, who uh, had the, uh, the, the, the comedy aspect yeah. to it. So great, great tandem. And, and looking back, it's kind of astonishing that the, yeah. uh, the Warriors were able to have a, a tandem like that doing their radio games. Yeah, that's, that's amazing. I had not realized that uh, those two were together. Uh, you know, there are a couple of things that stick in my mind just hearing Hank just driving up from, because uh, I lived elsewhere for a while in the, in the 80s or 90s, and I'd, I'd hear a game or two. <laughs> and there was one time he had his partner was, and I forget who it was, Giants pitcher was having a rough night, and then his defense let him down too. And whoever it was said, man, that's like somebody running you over with his car, then coming back and stealing your wallet. And Hank, Hank says... Well, I wouldn't know. I'll take your word for it. You know? <laughs> you know, it's just that kind of stuff that I just love it. I remember it, you know. He'd do his little commercial reads, you know, say, say goodbye to your old taco sauce and say hello to La Victoria. <laughs> so if you ever wanted to talk to taco sauce, now you got something to say. He'd do stuff like that. I mean, I just loved it. Yeah. Well, uh, and like I said, I didn't hear Hank uh, do that much radio. I do remember in the 71 postseason, uh, 
the Giants played the Pirates in the league championship series. And Lon had to go away to do uh, a 49ers game. He was still doing both at the time. And so Bill Thompson was Lon's partner at that point. Russ Hodges had retired. And then he had passed away early in the 71 season. Uh, so they hired Hank to work with Bill Thompson in that playoff series. And, and I remember thinking, wow, he's so good at baseball. And uh, it's too bad he doesn't do the games all the time. He's just so good at it. Uh, and he had done a handful of games during the regular season because Lon's uh, wife, his first wife, uh, was uh, very ill with cancer. And so Lon would occasionally uh, take games off just to be with her or to get her to the hospital or whatever was going on, a very uh, sad season for Lon. Uh, so Hank did a, a, some games, and, and Don Klein, the, uh, the great former voice of Stanford football and basketball, and the KCBS uh, sportscaster, sports director, uh, would also occasionally fill in. But uh, So I, I, that was the first experience I had of Hank actually doing baseball. And I, I do remember uh, Hank talking about a guy, a new pitcher comes in, and you know how you talk about he's got a curveball and a fastball, and he's, mm-hmm. got, you know, he's got all the pitches, the changeup. And, and uh, Hank said... Uh, this guy's got a, a 7.89 earned run average and has really uh, had some control issues and, uh, and given up a lot of home runs. So, uh, but he's one of those guys, you could say, he's got all the pitches. He's got the home run pitch, the wild pitch, the hit by pitch. <laughs> so uh, uh, one of my favorites, and I didn't hear him do it, I just I, I read about Because he was a guy who his humor was was so spot on that people wrote it down and and they and they wrote about it Mm -hmm. uh, because the lines were so good but uh, uh, the Giants were playing uh, the Houston uh, uh, Astros and Houston was good and uh, and Montreal it might have been 1994 where the Expos had Mm -hmm. one of their best teams ever that was a under the radar, great team it with was. the talent they had, it was. and 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 it was sort of a, a tragic aspect to it because the strike came along that year, yeah. and that that might have been a team that went to the World Series, and Felipe Alou was the manager, and that was always a a, a sore point for Felipe because he believed that team was going to go to the World Series if not win the World Series, and then uh, they, they didn't have the chance to do it. Uh, so Hank's doing a game in Houston, and he's talking about how good the Astros are. And uh, a chance to win the uh, the National League West, and uh, the Montreal Expos are way ahead in the National League East. And if that holds, it'll be the first time in history that the National League Championship Series would be played entirely outside of the United States, mm-hmm. which uh, you know literally was true in terms of Houston, although uh, or uh, of uh, Montreal, but only in a certain way in, in Houston, but. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but it was uh, one of those, uh, you know, Hank Greenwald uh, <laughs> funny lines that yeah. uh, it, it was so dry that you had to think about it for a moment, yeah. and, and then and then you laughed and laughed and laughed. Yeah, well, I just did. I had to think for about five <laughs> seconds. Yeah, I'm sure that went over well in Houston, by the way. So, uh, yeah. Uh, did, how, how much interaction did you have with him after he retired? I know we see his son Doug quite a bit, but uh, was was Hank around? Did you talk to him a lot? Well, uh, because I was such a big f- fan of of Hank. Uh, I, I did get to know him a little bit, mm-hmm. and uh, uh, I remember seeing him, and this is a funny thing, because, again, I, I didn't know him as a baseball guy, 
And it might have been the year before he started doing the Giants games. So he, he wasn't doing the baseball yet. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was in Chicago at the old Comiskey Park. Doing, I was doing the Texas Ranger games, and they're playing the White Sox. And Hank is there. So I recognize Hank. And I had met Hank and gotten to know him a little bit at KMBR back in the late 70s. He came back from Hawaii. Uh, uh, actually, not from Hawaii. At that time, he had come back from Australia. He had, he had moved to Australia. He was like an old-time 19th-century pioneer. Uh, he picked up stakes with his wife, and, and they, they, went to, they moved to Australia. But they had decided that Doug was born while they were down there, and they decided uh, that his broadcast career was not doing that well in Australia. They preferred to hire Australians, apparently. Amazing. And uh, so he came back to the Bay Area, and he and I were actually doing talk shows. Uh, they used to call it K- uh, Sports Phone 68 mm-hmm. in those days. It was a 6 to 8 o'clock show mm-hmm. on KMBR. And that year they were carrying the A's games, but they had made a deal with Charlie Finley only to carry the A's games uh, on a tape delay basis. The, the game would not go on the air until mm-hmm. 8 o'clock or 7.30 or whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, so Hank was the host of Sports Phone 68, and I got hired to do the, the show after the ball game was over. But now they were in the pennant race down the stretch, and so, um, and, and I'm, trying to, I'm trying to remember, uh, it, it might have been, I think it was 76, actually, 1976. Mm-hmm. So um, uh, the A's were in the pennant race, and so now KMBR decided to carry all the games live, because there was a lot of interest with the team in the pennant race. So Hank had his show, and then I would come on right after Hank's show, and a lot of times there would be a ball game that would come on in the middle of Hank's show, and then he had to stay in there and uh, and uh, you know tell the engineers when to run the commercials and whatnot. So he and I would spend some time together before I took over at eight o'clock, and then uh, and, and I was in charge of all of that. And uh, so we got to know each other a little bit. And uh, uh, and and in 1977, I was doing soccer back east. And Hank was still on KMBR at the time, pre-Giants. But we went to a party. Uh, the, the, a guy named Mike Marquardt was the, the big engineer, and he did all the Warriors games. And when I had done the soccer in San Jose, he was our engineer as well. And uh, so Mike Marquardt had a party at his home in Fremont. And so my wife and I went, and, and Hank was there with, with his wife, Carla. And I had done uh, an A's game that weekend just as a fill-in at Fenway Park. Mm-hmm. And uh, they put the A's broadcasters on television, a, a rare television game in those days, and they hired me to do the radio. I was already back east, so it was easy. And Hank had heard the game, and, and, he, and he complimented me. He says, hey, I, you really sounded good, and your, uh, uh, the description was just outstanding. I was so thrilled that this guy who'd been my idol yeah. uh, was uh, uh, giving me such a, a good report card on, the, on this, this baseball game that I had done that weekend. So... Uh, uh, and then I realized that that's the kind of guy Hank was. He was just a good guy, you know. And uh, but uh, uh, so we we got to know each other a little bit then. And then he started doing the the Giants games. And by that time, I was doing the Texas Ranger games. And then I moved to Boston. But this one time in uh, Chicago, it had to be '78. Now that I think of it, because he was not doing the Giants yet. Mm-hmm. And there he was at Comiskey Park. And I said, "What are you doing here?" And uh, and he was dressed like he was at work, you know, and Hank had the sport coat and a, mm-hmm. and a tie and, and whatnot. And he told me this story uh, about the day that a second baseball ended up in play. That was a Cardinals game. 
And it created a lot of trouble because it was a, a ball in the gap in right center. The outfielders are chasing it and throwing it back in. Runners are running. And meanwhile, the umpire had absentmindedly, the plate umpire, had thrown a new ball out to the pitcher. And, uh, uh, and maybe thinking that the ball had been a home run. I don't know yeah. exactly what, why this happened. So now there's a play at the plate, and the, and the pitcher throws a ball to the catcher. <laughs> You know, while while they're out fumbling the ball out of the outfield, and uh, uh, and and the umpire calls the guy out, and it, but it was not a ball that should have been in play, so it was comical, uh, and yet it was a very sad story because uh, this umpire got a lot of trouble with his bosses for screwing that up, and uh, and 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 I don't know if it was because of that or or part of that, but he ended up committing suicide. So oh, wow. it's a very famous old story of something that is one of the most weird plays in baseball history, but also a very sad story. So Hank knew the story, and he knew that Harry Carey was the broadcaster for the Cardinals that day. So he was there, and Harry at that time, uh, 1978, was the broadcaster for the White Sox. Mm -hmm. And he was really there. He had a day off from whatever he was doing and wanted to interview Harry uh, to have uh, something to make a story for his talk show or w- whatever it was he wanted to do with it uh, about that really bizarre play. So, uh, and that's when I really realized, wow, he, he, he's not just somebody who enjoys baseball. He knows baseball. He knows baseball history. So, uh, mm-hmm. so uh, uh, and, and, you know, usually if you're not working a game and you've been around for a while, you don't spend a day off at a game, yeah. you know, you, yeah. you, you go do something else uh, other than and what you normally get paid to do. So um, anyway, that's who Hank was. He, he was a huge baseball guy. And I, and I was so happy for him when he started doing the Giants games with Lindsey Nelson, knowing that he really was at heart a baseball guy. I had not heard that story. That's that's uh, really interesting. Uh, John Miller, voice of the Giants, joining us on Triple Zolly Report. And we'll be back in a moment. We are chatting with the voice of the Giants, John Miller, who I'm now finding out was one of the very first hosts of Sports Phone 68, and I'm the last host of Sports Phone 680, so this is quite an arc here <laughs> that we've got going on. And, uh, you know, I, I definitely wanted to talk to you about Willie McCovey, who passed away last week, and, uh, you know, last few years were rough for him, but he was always out at the ballpark, and he was there to present the, the Willie Mack Award a month ago. So he was, he was always there. I, I mean, I mean, really... Really, when you uh, the the physical problems that he endured is such a sad story, yeah. and yet he would not make it a sad story. Uh, and when you consider that he was a great athlete, a professional athlete, and one of the all-time great baseball sluggers in in history, and then uh, to just be wheelchair bound and he had knee problems, back problems. He he had a back surgery that took 11 hours at one point, and uh, and didn't know if he was ever going to wake up from it uh, when he went in for it. So. Uh, and yet, he always had a sense of humor, would always have a smile, and loved to talk baseball, loved to talk the Giants. And he was always at the ballpark, if it was humanly possible. And, and sometimes uh, that was debatable, you know, for, for most of us mere mortals to uh, say, you know, well, I could just stay home and not go through all of this to, just to get to the park and watch it on TV. That it would have been pretty easy just to stay and watch it, but he wanted to go to the ballpark, and uh, and the Giants wanted him there. So uh, and and he'd go down to to uh, Murph's office. Players would seek him out, knowing that that he watched the games and studied the games, and uh, 
and they would they'd ask for his advice and uh, uh, you know things like that. So, uh, uh, and for me as, as a kid growing up a Giants fan, I remembered so many things so clearly from games on TV or games that I saw at Candlestick or just hearing Russ and Lon describe them on the radio. Uh, but uh, it was always a treat when McCovey would be down in Murph's office before a game. And every once in a while, it would be McCovey and Mays together. And, and one day, it was McCovey, Mays, Marichal, and Cepeda. They were all down there in Murph's hey. office. Now, that was, that was a day. Yeah. And, uh, and I, I, I get into a discussion about McCovey and Cepeda because the Giants was like they had too many good players. Mm. You know, McCovey, for me, the sadness of his career, and it sounds ridiculous to say because he's in the Hall of Fame. Mm-hmm. He was an MVP. He was a Rookie of the Year. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was an All-Star Game MVP. Mm-hmm. Uh, it might be the only guy ever to have been a Rookie of the Year, a League MVP, and an All-Star Game MVP. Yeah. To, to be all three of those. And Comeback Player of the Year, too. Yeah. yeah. Uh, uh, later on, yeah. Uh, back with the Giants. But uh, I think that McCovey, for most of his career, was underappreciated. And part of it was because they had too many good players. You had Cepeda, a Hall of Famer, and McCovey. They're both first basemen. Who's playing first? Uh, Cepeda sometimes tried left field. McCovey sometimes tried left field. Uh, Maybe neither one was the best at it since that was not a position for either one of them. Uh, So I'm I'm kind of giving him some grief before the game in Murph's office, saying, uh, who is best in left field? And how come McCovey ended up in left field more often than Cepeda and so on and so forth? And then Mays kind of jumped in. And, and, and this is part of the reason, I think Willie Mays, being who he was, was part of the reason that McCovey was underappreciated. You were a teammate of Willie Mays, you got overshadowed. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was impossible not to be. Uh, if you were Henry Aaron uh, and you played on another team entirely, mm-hmm. uh, you were overshadowed. Uh, Roberto Clemente, uh, Frank Robinson. Willie Mays just overshadowed everybody. He was the great Willie Mays, who could do everything on a field and, and, uh, and who had flamboyance in doing it and hit home runs and stole bases. He could do everything. Uh, so Mays says, says, McCovey was a good left fielder, and he had a good arm, and he threw out guys. Mm-hmm. You, you didn't run on McCovey in left field, which, and I didn't know that. Mm-hmm. I, I had no memory of that. And he also said, and he says, and, and look at Juan over here, when he pitched a no-hitter in 1963, uh, it was only a no-hitter because McCovey was in left field and he saved the no-hitter in the ninth inning. Really? He robbed a guy of a home run. And I can't remember the, which guy he robbed. But, uh, uh, and I said, so wh- 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 you mean he, what do you mean he robbed him, though? Uh, I wanted some detail. And he said, well, the ball was over the fence, and he went up with a leap and brought it back into the park. And he was the only left fielder we had who could have done that. Harvey Keene was the other guy. He wasn't nearly as tall as McCovey, and he couldn't leap at all. McCovey was very athletic, and he he was 6'4", and he had long arms, and he went way up with a leap. And he's the only guy we we had who could have caught that ball. His his glove hand was fully extended high over his head. So, um, uh, and I I knew Marichal had pitched that no-hitter. That was the first no-hitter in San Francisco Giants history. So it was a big one, mm-hmm. and uh, and McCovey as a left fielder saved it, and I, I kind of kept shooting a glance at McCovey, and he had a little smile on his face, and I think he got a kick out of the guy who was telling this story, yeah. that it was Willie Mays who was bragging <laughs> about him, you know. Yeah. So uh, uh, so that was kind of cool, but uh, 
the, the, the one, th- and I saw McCovey hit home runs, and I saw him do amazing things. Yeah. And in 1969, he had one of the great all-time years. Uh, and it was still a, a, an era of the pitcher. Mm-hmm. The year before had been the year of the right. pitcher. The American League had only won 300 hitter. Uh, Yastrzemski at 301 and won the batting title. Um, and so this was an era of the pitcher for sure. Uh, and McCovey hit 320 or 325, whatever it was, 45 home runs. And he set the all-time record at the time for intentional walks. And it was like 45 times they walked him intentionally. Not even the babe had been walked mm-hmm. intentionally that often. And, uh, and how could they walk him with Lou Gehrig hitting right behind him, mm-hmm. you know, intentionally too often. But, um, and they would also go into a shift from a cubby. And, and I always remember years later having this talk with Reggie Jackson. He brought up McCovey. He says, you know, they go into these shifts and whatnot because guys pull the ball and whatnot. And he was talking about Big Poppy with the Red Sox, who was always kind of uh, bemoaning how many hits he was losing on the shift. Uh, but Reggie said, I think they did it with McCovey because he hit it so hard. The infielders wanted to get the hell out of there. <laughs> so that's where they went. And... Uh, um, so the, the story that I remember, and I think it was the second game of a doubleheader in 1970, Candlestick was still in the process of being remodeled to become 49ers Stadium. And they were adding that upper deck all the way around the outfield, mm-hmm. and they put in artificial turf. Uh, first inning of the second game, nothing, nothing score. Mays gets on first with two down, and McCovey comes up, and he bunts. The great McCovey. And this is the year after his MVP season, and he was on his way to hit another 39 home runs and I don't know, hitting 298 with another 140 walks in 1970. Mm-hmm. He bunts, and he bunted hard. And the ball bounces right along the third baseline on the turf and right past third and into the outfield along the left field line. A bunt by McCovey, and Mays scores from first. And McCovey ends up at second with a double, mm-hmm. a bunt yeah. with a run scoring for first, and McCovey gets a double on the ball. And uh, so I did ask both of them about that on a day where they at the ballpark together. Mm-hmm. And I said to Mays, I said, did you know he was going to bunt? He says, no, no. He says, in fact, I hit a ball that should have been a double. And this is, and this is Mays' memory of it. But I knew if I went for a double, they'd just go ahead and walk, stretch. So I had to stop. And that was the play. He'd go no matter what he did. And then when he bunted, he just, Mays just took off. And he said he knew right away he was going to score on the play. And... Uh, I told that story once on an ESPN Sunday night national telecast, and people were, oh, sure, right. <laughs> and uh, a guy named Rob Nyer, who was a columnist uh, for ESPN.com at the time, he went back and looked it up, thinking that, no, this is some fake story that he's just made up. Mm-hmm. And he says, I'll be damned. That, that actually yeah. literally did happen, yeah. and it's just the way he told it. Uh, after he passed away, uh, I was looking up some of the longest home runs McCovey ever hit in other ballparks. Because Russ Hodges used to say, in every ballpark the Giants go in, uh, the local people will point to a spot in that ballpark and say, see that spot out out there in the upper deck in right field or right center or whatever? That's where McCovey hit one a few years back that's the longest home run anybody's ever seen in this ballpark. Uh, So I found a story in the first year of the second St. Louis Bush Stadium the big multi-purpose round ballpark that we all remember where they played for years. It was the, uh, the 
about four months after the park opened in 66. And McCovey hit what everybody who was there thought was the longest home run they'd ever seen in that ballpark, including Mike Shannon, who was the right fielder that day. Now, Shannon's been broadcasting for 40-something years, but to this day still says it's the longest home run he's ever seen hit in any ballpark, much less that ballpark. Which is saying something considering Mark McGuire played there too right. later on. Right. And uh, so I looked that game up, you know, on baseball reference or, mm-hmm. you know, whatever. And uh, uh, retrosheet.org. Mm-hmm. And come to find out in his first at bat in that same game where he hit the epic home run, he bunted for a hit. <laughs> and they quoted him in the story afterward. said, what would be most memorable for you as you look back at this game, you think, in the years to come? the spectacular home run or the bunt. And McCovey thought about it for a moment. He says, you know, it sounds ridiculous, but I think it's the bunt that I remember most because they were shocked. <laughs> and the pitcher, it got into his head a little bit. And that alone uh, got something started. And that could win a game for you. Yeah. Uh, so you, you kind of shake up a pitcher, and uh, now you, what, what the, it's so unexpected. So, uh, so I remember him bunting for a double and an RBI. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, and it wasn't the only time that he did it. So, uh, uh, and I also remember sometimes when you're a kid and you're playing Little League and, and Babe Ruth League, things like that, uh, you go, would go to a game and you would study what the players were doing. I would watch them, how they would back up plays on throws and uh, uh, how the, the catcher would always run up the first baseline to back up or a throw, mm-hmm. things like that. And I remember uh, McCovey trying to score from second on a base hit. And there's a play, the play's a close play. And McCovey went in with a, a fadeaway slide. These call them a hook slide. Right. Now guys do it head first, and mm-hmm. they reach back to the plate with their arm, mm-hmm. trying to avoid the tag. McCovey did it feet first, sliding on the foul side of home plate. Reaching back. His right leg tucked under his left leg, yeah. and his left foot reaching back as he's mm-hmm. going by, touching the plate with his toe, and the, the catcher missed him. And I always remember that, and when I got back with my you know, Little League team or Babe Ruth League team, whatever it was, then I, I tried to uh, learn how to do that because mm-hmm. I thought, now that, because it looked pretty, really cool yeah, as well yeah. at the same time. So, so he really knew how to play. Oh, yeah. And uh, uh, McCovey, I don't know how many home runs he would have hit if he'd been the first baseman when he first came up mm-hmm. where he yeah. would have played all the time. You know, 1962, he had 220 at-bats. Uh, if it was a left-hander pitching, he didn't play. He had 12 plate appearances against a left-hander that whole year. 200, uh, 220 at-bats or whatever, you know, close to that. And he hit 22 home runs and hit 292 and got a lot of walks. And I remember looking back at those numbers a few years after and thinking, damn, what if they'd had the DH then? I mean, yeah. uh, and that was a great lineup as it was. And uh, you know, Mays hit 49 homers, uh, Cepeda hit 40. And if McCovey played every day, uh, he would have hit 40-something home runs. Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, he, I remember hearing him say that if he was in a slump, he'd rather go up against a lefty because that, that kind of reminded him to keep his front shoulder in. Yeah. And then he'd drive the ball the other way. And so, you know, the, he could have shown them that a lot earlier in his career than he was able to. Yeah. And since Cepeda was a right-handed hitter, it just – it was just too obvious, I guess, for the manager yeah. at the time just to say, well, I'll play McCovey against right-handers and, mm-hmm. uh, and, 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 and not have him in there against lefties. But um, the year after 62, for some reason, they finally said, we got to get him in there. Yeah. And he hit 44 home runs and tied Hank Aaron for the National League lead. And Hank Aaron wore number 44 
as did Willie McCovey, mm -hmm. and they each had 44 home runs, and they were both from Mobile, Alabama. Right. They grew up in the same town. Uh, Aaron was a little bit older than McCovey, so uh, that was kind of cool as well. But uh, uh, that was the first year when McCovey got to play more or less on an everyday basis, and he ended up tying the all-time great home run hitter for the National League lead in home runs when he finally got the shot to do it. So um, in 62, something that always remained sort of a sore spot for McCovey, the Giants had a chance in Game 7 to win the World Series against the Yankees. It was a great World Series. And now it's the bottom of the ninth inning. And with two down and Matty Alou at first, Mays hits a double into the right field corner. And Alou gets held up at third. Mays always said he should have scored the tying run. Uh, one time he said to me, he says, let me put it this way. Uh, if I'd been the runner at first, I would have he scored. scored. <laughs> and no he's doubt. Willie Mays, if, and yeah, I'm sure he would have. <laughs> but uh, so now, second and third, it's one to nothing in the bottom of the ninth with two down. And the World Series is on the line. A base hit, and the Giants win the game in the World Series. Mm -hmm. uh, if they get McCovey out, the Yankees win the World Series. McCovey's up, right-handed pitcher Ralph Terry on the mound. First base is empty. Yep. But Orlando Cepeda's on deck. Ralph Houck, the manager, has a left-hander up in the bullpen, Louis Arroyo. He goes to the mound and does not call for Arroyo to face McCovey. He asks Ralph Terry, you're finishing this game. Who do you want to face? And remember, two years before... Terry, in the bottom of the ninth of Game 7, gave up the home run to Bill Mazeroski, right. which was something that kept him awake at night. Mm -hmm. And Ralph Howe knew this is his chance for the ultimate redemption, to win a Game 7 mm -hmm. in a classic, a one nothing game. And he said, I'm going to face McCovey. And probably because uh, he could be careful with him, and if he walked him, he walked him. First base is open, and he could go after Cepeda. Mm -hmm. uh, McCovey hits one foul down the right field line in the air. And then the second pitch, and I've looked this up, uh, the, the film of it, the pitch is up about shoulder high. So he was, I believe, pitching around him. Mm -hmm. And up and in uh, a fastball, and McCovey blisters it. And he said after that game, it's as hard a ball as he's ever hit. Uh, the shortstop is not over in a complete shift. He's well over, almost behind second. The second baseman is not out in the outfield. Bobby Richardson is still on the, by the edge of the outfield grass, but he's playing him to pull. Mm -hmm. And he moves to his left very quickly and reaches up above his left shoulder, makes the catch, and the game's over. Mm -hmm. And uh, Bobby Richardson caught the ball. If, if the ball had been a little bit higher or to the left or to the right, it's a two-run single, and the Giants win the World Series, and McCovey is the hero. So that always stuck in his mind because he felt so disappointed that he had not come th through with the hit. At the, the same time, he said, but I've never hit a ball harder. So there's, once you hit a ball hard, it's kind of out of your hands as to whether it's a hit or not. But the year that he went into the Hall of Fame, 1986, uh, they asked him um, what he tells people when, a, say, a fan would see him and recognize him and say, uh, how do you want to be remembered in the years to come? And Willie says, I tell him, I, I'd like to be remembered as the guy who hit the ball over Bobby Richardson's head. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sure he would. And that's, all, to me, one of the all-time great lines. That's the way I'd like to be remembered. Yeah, sure. uh, he, no, he did everything he was supposed to do. 
Hout got away with it. Uh, okay, maybe he pitches around McCovey, and maybe Cepeda hits a grand slam. Who knows? I mean, it's all sliding doors, but McCovey did everything he was supposed to do in that bat. And I remember the Charlie Brown comic strip, Peanuts, and they're sitting there on the sidewalk, and finally Charlie says, why couldn't McCovey have hit it a foot higher? You yeah, know? yeah. So, I mean, it's going to be one of the great what-ifs of all time, and it's too bad because it's one of the things that people remember about his career. And it was nothing, again, that he did wrong. And there are so many great things he did in his career. And, you know, it's that and just remembering the person himself, too. Yeah. And, and, um, and I turned that Charlie Brown comic into an Instagram uh, after Willie passed away oh. with the caption of uh, his quote as to how he'd like to be remembered. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, uh, and, and Charlie Brown and Linus are... Sitting on a uh, on the curb, with their head in their hands, looking kind of down, mm-hmm. and finally in the final uh, the final column, uh, Charlie jumps up and screams, "Why couldn't have McCovey have hit it just three feet higher?" Three feet, yeah. <laughs> so now that's uh, that appeared in December, because mm-hmm. uh, he you know he had to draw those things right. way in advance. Uh, in about five weeks later, in January, it's the same cartoon again. The first panel, second panel, third panel, Charlie Brown and Linus looking depressed and down and their head in their hands. And then Charlie Brown jumps up and shouts, or why couldn't a McCovey hit it even two feet higher? <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, that's, that, that's one that's definitely in the memory bank for, what is it now, 56 years later. But you know what? Just so many great memories with uh, Willie, and just I think we were all privileged to know him too. Just beyond the baseball talent, what a kind and dignified person he was. Truly, and uh, you know, and Willie was a guy who, as a player, uh, he would go to functions. He he was into trying to help the team promote itself, uh, and most of his career he played hurt. And you know, we knew him later at the ballpark. Uh, when he had crutches, and then later it was a wheelchair, and then later uh, he had to go to the ends of the earth and back just to get to a game. Uh, And he was yet there almost every night, Uh, but always with a smile and and always wanting to talk about the game. And and he was a guy who had those knee problems and some back problems for much of his career, going way back into the 60s. Uh, most seasons he played with those kind of uh, injuries that became worse and worse as time went on. By uh, maybe 1971, he missed half a season because of, of knee problems. And he went his last uh, eight or nine years as a player uh, where he did not have enough at-bats to qualify for the, the batting title because he, he missed so many games because of the, you know, he, he'd go on a road trip. And I remember him telling me that uh, a lot of times on the road uh, after a long flight, They'd get in, and first morning he'd have to go to a doctor and get his knee drained. He says his knee would be like twice the, the size it should have been with, yeah. uh, with all this uh, fluid that it collected on his knee and, and whatnot. So, uh, so uh, he spent a lot of time in the trainer's room getting himself ready to play. And, uh, and still one of the great things, uh, talk about a, a great player rising to the occasion. Um, you know, the Giants were... Uh, in the, the latter years of Horace Stoneham's ownership of the ball club, uh, they had real financial problems. Mm-hmm. You know, Horace Stoneham and his family, uh, that was their business. 
you know, he didn't uh, have some huge company that he made billions in, and then he bought the Giants. Mm -hmm. Uh, his grandfather bought the Giants, and then uh, it went to his father, then then to Horace Stoneham uh, in New York. So that was the family business, and uh, and then the attendance went away. Actually, Giants attendance split in half about the time that the Oakland A's moved to right. Oakland, and uh, the Giants were one of the best drawing teams in the National League. Only the Dodgers would outdraw them year in and year out, and the Giants get million six, million seven, million five, mm -hmm. and then all of a sudden, literally. In 1968, the Giants drew 800,000 and the A's drew 800,000. It was like a million six still paid for baseball in the Bay Area, but <laughs> half of them went to A's games yeah. now. And uh, and I thought I thought well that's a little more than just a coincidence, isn't it? Yeah. But uh, uh, so Horace had all these financial issues, and one by one, the great older players got traded away, uh, starting with Mays. Mm -hmm. uh, and there were others who got traded even before Mays, but. Uh, and they sent Mays back to New York with the Mets, and uh, because that's where he started. And right. The Mets really wanted him, and he helped the Mets get to a, a World Series against the Oakland Athletics in 1973 in his final year. Uh, uh, Marichal, he got traded. Uh, I actually did the last Marichal win, which was for the Boston Red Sox mm. at the Oakland Coliseum in 1974. Wow. Which. Uh, I didn't realize for years afterward uh, that that was actually the last game he ever won in his Hall of Fame career. So I gave him the, my score sheet from my scorebook from that game. And I asked him about it. I thought, you probably have stuff. He said, no, we didn't save anything in those days. There was no such thing as baseball memorabilia to us. So, uh, and, and here he is. They were the best team in baseball on their way to winning a third straight World Series. And he shut them down in their home ballpark. Mm -hmm. Reggie Jackson, Sal Bando, all those guys. So, uh, and it was one of the great thrills for me of that season. My first as a, I was 22 years old, and there's Juan Marichal, my, one of my boyhood heroes. So, uh, but McCovey got traded to the San Diego Padres. And because he was McCovey, because Juan Marichal was Marichal, Mays was Mays, Horace Stoneham wanted them to go somewhere that worked for them. Mm -hmm. And McCovey said, I think it would be best for me to stay in California. And especially Southern California, you know, because his knees were such an issue, and and uh, the weather is always good, mm -hmm. always warm. He thought that might help him, uh, and he did pretty well. Uh, and there was a rookie came up while he was down with the Padres by the name of Dave Winfield, who also is in the Hall of Fame. Mm -hmm. And Winfield said he took took me under his wing and taught me about life in the big leagues. And mm -hmm. uh, Winfield never played a an at bat in the minor leagues, so uh, so there was kind of a little. An intersection of, of two greats uh, that, that yeah. McCovey helped, but when he came back to the Giants, he had his best year, really since probably 1970, and I'm, I want to say it's 1977, and uh, and I, I might I might have that wrong, but he had 28 home runs, I remember that, yeah. and he hit for average, and he he was Willie McCovey again. He was winning games. He hit his 18th uh, uh, Grand Slam, which was the all-time National League record when he, when he retired. I think it's still the National League record today. Only Lou Gehrig had more all-time in the history of the game when McCovey retired. I, I think A-Rod might have passed McCovey uh, maybe with, right. with yeah. 19 or, yeah. or 20. But uh, uh, so uh, anyway, so that was kind of a thrill 
And there were still some thrills to be had with McCovey in those years back with the Giants, but back home where he belonged. Yeah, that was a very cool year uh, when he had something left in the tank. And I always say that he was exit velocity before exit velocity was cool. I mean, <laughs> I can't imagine what some of those numbers would have been back then because, I mean, the second game I ever saw, second big league game I ever saw, he hit a home run. It was a wicked line drive. Well, he didn't hit anything but wicked line drives. Yeah. So uh, I, I imagine he'd top 110 a few times. Oh, easily, yeah. easily. And, and maybe 120 a few times. Times too. Yeah. Uh, uh, one of the great things about McCovey, and, and, and I'm just reminiscing about being a kid, the only games when I was a kid that were ever televised by the Giants were the games in L.A. Mm-hmm. Uh, starting in 62, the expansion year, that meant nine games. Before that, it was 11 games. And that was it. Uh, there were no other right. baseball games on television. So. That was appointment viewing uh, when, when those handful of games were played. And, uh, you know, the, the Dodgers had Koufax and Drysdale and Maury Wills, the, the, you know, stealing bases, great pitching. But McCovey, for whatever reason, he owned Drysdale. He had spectacular numbers against Drysdale. And McCovey would come up and Drysdale would deck him. And McCovey would hit the, hit the dirt. And then he'd stand back up, get back in the box, and then boom, he'd launch a home run or hit a gapper or whatever. Uh, uh, I guess Drysdale, as McCovey got older and Drysdale got older, he, he turned that around a little bit. Figured it out a little bit. And, yeah. uh, and, and it might have been something as simple as uh, maybe there wasn't anybody hitting behind McCovey to uh, worry about any longer, that, yeah. so he just uh, wouldn't throw him a strike or something. Who knows? But uh, And I used to ask Drysdale about why he couldn't get McCovey out, and uh, and and he uh, and Drysdale was a good guy if you weren't a hitter mm-hmm. facing him. But uh, uh, and he he just said, well, um, uh, whatever it was, I think I'm, primarily I made some mistakes, and he you couldn't make a mistake against McCovey. Mm-hmm. And he says, uh, and, and he says I hit the ball pretty well. He had one of these wraparounds, almost like Linscombe, right? where the, the ball would be in his right hand and he, his arm would go behind his body and then he'd sling it back. And he was more of a kind of sidearm uh, than, than an over-the-top kind of, kind of a pitcher. And so a different release point than, than most guys. But McCovey, he saw the ball just fine out of the hand of Drysdale mm-hmm. and uh, was hitting home runs. And I, at one point he was probably a home run every three or four at-bats in his career against Drysdale. So, uh, well, no wonder he decked him. <laughs> Yeah, but that's what would happen back in those days, and they just, yeah, okay, you did your thing, now I'm going to do my thing, and yeah. then, then you hit the ball hard. Yeah, we're, we're definitely going to miss stretch. Uh, before you go, John, I, I want to get up to, uh, to date because it sounds like the Giants are honing in on Farhan Zaidi at the Dodgers, and I guess it would be for executive vice president of baseball operations. We're not sure exactly, but it, it would be lateral. Well, actually, he's, he's under Andrew Friedman now, but... A lot of talk about analytics and things like that. And of course, that's a part of the game now. But it sounds like this is a guy who would bring both to the table, an idea of what, how scouting is very important, but also the analytic side of it as well. Uh, how is he regarded in the game, and uh, would that be somebody you think uh, would, would fit well here? I think uh, for people who have that sort of insider's knowledge, they know the name well. Yeah. Uh, going back to his days with the athletics, where uh, – you know, Billy Bean got all the, the headlines there, but Billy Bean relied on people like Farhan Zaidi uh, very much uh, for that, that kind of uh, the ability to crunch those numbers and, 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 and get the, the, the great information. So uh, uh, 
the Dodgers kind of took it to a different level. They, they decided, we need like four or five of those kind of guys. They, I mean, the Dodgers, uh, they got Friedman, which you thought, okay, now they got the, a, a top GM. But then they got Zaidi, and then they got uh, uh, two or three other guys who were uh, top GM type guys. And I never understood exactly how many of those guys do you actually need, you know. Uh, uh, it, it might be a, a, a little bit too over the top. And uh, uh, it, it was interesting how the Dodgers, you know, by the, uh, the, the last weeks of the season and then into the postseason, uh, it was really almost like Dave Roberts was managing from a script that was written up at 10 o'clock in the morning. Uh, if a guy had faced right. X number of hitters and it was the third time through the order, uh, it's time to bring in such, such a reliever mm-hmm. that was decided upon uh, that morning. So uh, I think that, uh, and what was really going on, I have no idea. I, I never talked to anybody about it. I didn't ask them to reveal their secrets. Uh, but I think they definitely had a plan, and, and Roberts was there too. Uh, uh, you know, be the guy who put the plan into effect. But, uh, uh, but I think Zaidi is also a guy who knows all about who Bruce Bochy is. And, uh, and Bruce Bochy has managed a team to three World Series championships, which nobody uh, with any teams Zaidi's ever been involved in has ever managed a team uh, to a World Series championship. So uh, I, I would think that uh, that would also be part of the... Uh, uh, the deal, if he ends up being the guy, that uh, he knows a lot about all of that stuff, which for me, the, the, the real value of the analytics is in, uh, is it time to trade a guy? Is it time to sign a free agent? Is it time to, uh, uh, to steer away from a free agent? Uh, you can use those numbers to project the future. And that's the, the real value of that to me. Uh, and of course, they have the, the analytics uh, for building a, a, a roster, a lineup, mm-hmm. uh, a staff, over 162 games. Because in any given day, in a postseason game, a regular season game, all of that stuff is meaningless. Uh, that day, how's the pitcher's stuff? Yeah. And is the hitter on a, on a roll right now or not? Uh, and you see it all the time. Mm-hmm. A guy you can't get out in April. Mm-hmm. He's just wearing you out. Every no, no matter who your pitcher is, and no matter what the situation is, this guy's hitting the ball hard. And then you come back and you see that same team like two months later, and he's slumping now. And this guy's only hitting pop ups and striking out against the same pitchers. You know the guy you couldn't get out. So, uh, uh, so I think the, the the value of the analytics over a six month period, though. Mm-hmm is uh, projecting over that amount of time what, what uh, guys are likely to do. And so, uh, and that's the way the game is played right now. And uh, the Red Sox, the Astros, the Dodgers, the, the top team, the Yankees, sure. I mean, they have bought in 100%. And, uh, and, and you cannot uh, argue with the results that they have had. And the Giants have never made a big deal about it, but they, they've had their analytic guys as well. So uh, they've, they've, they've had plenty of that. Uh, they just try to keep it all in-house and they don't talk about it a whole lot and when you come to think of it even with these high-profile baseball guys like Zaidi and and Friedman and and whatnot in the Dodgers front office they don't they're not really forthcoming about what it is they're actually doing either so uh, uh, but one thing is for sure they've had a lot of success with whatever it is they're doing 
Yeah, yeah, you can't argue with that. And uh, but also acknowledging that as long as human beings are playing the game, you got to understand human beings. And like you said, you know, how's that pitcher feeling that day? How's the hitter doing? All that uh, you know figures into it. But a smart guy can can turn around a team in in one or two years. Yeah. Still, and ultimately, if you have Bruce Bochy as your manager, uh, no matter what your analytics have shown, uh, whatever you thought at 10 o'clock that morning. Uh, you have to leave it in Bruce Bochy's hands, yeah. or, or why have him? You know, and uh, because he's shown himself to be as good as there is in in, in those moments. So, uh, and and I think uh, a lot of times Bruce Bochy would make the move that uh, they would have anticipated anyway, because Bochy he has all that information. Mm-hmm. Uh, he knows uh, his idea is to put a pinch hitter up in a spot where he's got his best chance to succeed against a pitcher that he's had some experience against. Mm-hmm. And a lot of teams are not even using that info now. They're, they're, they're going beyond that for guys against a certain kind of pitcher in a, in a certain situation. Swing types, pitch types, all that yeah, stuff. Yeah, yeah. so uh, there's much more to it than there used to be. It used to be you had the, maybe the guy's history against that pitcher, and you can just go with that. But uh, So... Um, uh, but I, I think it'll be very interesting. And, and I don't, don't know how many years Boach is wanting to continue with this anyway. I know his wife would like to see him uh, maybe do something a little less stressful. So, <laughs> But he's anxious to come back for another year. He, yeah. I think it leaves a bad taste in his mouth the way the team yeah. has gone the last couple of years. Yeah, yeah I, I would think that uh, at least for next year he's going to be fired up to, to get going again. Well, it should be fascinating. And, uh, John, we could spend another hour talking, but both our wives – are waiting for us so probably be wise to to end it here and we'll pick it up at a later date but really enjoyed talking to you today all right great to see you ray all the best all right and thank you so much to uh, john miller for sitting down for that interview a couple of days ago i thought rather timely uh, especially with the celebration of life being held for willie mccovey at AT at&t park and it's also a good excuse to get out to the half moon bay area on a glittering day and i picked up some seafood paella at sam so it was a win-win-win That's Triple's Alley Report. We'll talk to you next week.